Good morning. I hope your heart's been encouraged in the presence of the Lord this morning. Um, I'm going to start off a little different. We're, we're uh, not going to do this. I, I plan on mentioning this at the end of the service, but after the lyrics of that song, I just feel compelled huh, to speak over some friends this morning. Um, this is the last official Sunday that the Red Cliffs will be with us before moving to Wichita Falls. And so if you're a guest today, I'm sorry that we're making you feel like an outsider because you're like, who are the Red Cliffs? But just hang with us for a second. We're not trying to make you feel alienated. Uh, the Red Cliffs have been part of this church for 97 years. Wait, no. <laughs> My bad. I'm sorry. They've been a part of this church family for a very long time. And not like the they show up. I mean like part of the family. Um, investing in the next generation. Uh, James has served as our lead sheepdog officer uh, for our security team. Uh, they have uh, poured a big chunk of their lives out here. And I just couldn't help but think, God's been faithful to y'all. You got two young adult daughters who love Jesus. And why would he fail you now? He won't. <laughs> we love you. You're going with, with our heart's affection. And we just want to say thank you for all you've invested in this family. And we love you. I got to get a grip. Uh, we don't do that every time somebody moves away. Um, so if if you're watching online and we didn't do that when you moved, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. I want to say we're we're going to move towards uh, a time of the Lord's Supper this morning. And so before we jump in, I want to specifically speak to our friends who are worshiping with us online and say, we want you to be a part of this with us. And uh, so while we're getting ready to jump into the word or saying the creed together, go grab some bread and a cup. And the elements don't matter. There's nothing magical about the stuff we use. So maybe the coffee and donut that you have can suffice, um, save a piece until the end of the sermon, because um, we want you to participate in that with us. And this thing we do, when I was growing up, it was always called the Lord's Supper, but we always did it in the morning. So it's kind of like the Lord's brunch, right? Um, which when, when he first delivered it, it, it was dinner time, it was supper time. Um, but I like the word communion for this thing because I think it paints a better picture that this is a communal thing. That we're coming together for this thing. And so uh, the text we're going to walk through this morning is going to help, if you will, kind of funnel our hearts together to a communal place to come together to the Lord's table. Um, and so we're inviting everybody on that journey this morning. So grab your Bibles. If you would, we're going to jump right in. If you don't have a Bible, grab the one underneath the seat in front of you, if you would. And we'll invite you to join with us in our tradition where we hold up our Bibles and declare what we think this book really is with all of our hearts. Let's say this together this morning. Here we go. The Bible is the word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me. For your glory and my joy. Amen. Thank you so much. Turn to Acts chapter 13. If you're using one of those Bibles from the seat in front of you, it's page 866. 
Acts chapter number 13. Uh, last week, we really only unpacked the first verse. And so we're going to do a flyover of most of that chapter this morning as we're heading towards the Lord's table together. It's our 23rd week in the book of Acts, and yet we're only in chapter 13. Yes, I can do that math, but here we are. Uh, we're going to start with verse 1, even though we kind of covered verse 1. We read verses 1 through 3 last week, but we'll start there this week. And man, I... Okay, so here's the deal. When I wear contacts, I have to use reading glasses. But usually Sunday mornings, like I've just put the contact in and I'm okay, but I've been crying all morning, and my contact is as dry as the Sahara Desert, and so... I don't know how I'm going to talk with my hands this morning without throwing these across the room, but I can't see a thing. It's it's not okay. So I hope this is not the new normal of, hey, welcome to 45, I can't read Jesus' book anymore. What y'all don't know is when I preach with my iPad, like, there's one letter per swipe. Like, it's it's huge. And I have, I can't believe I'm admitting this. I've never said this out loud. Like, I keep buying larger print Bibles, and they don't make them bigger than this. The next step is Braille. Okay. (laughs) Okay. All right. Verse 13, uh, chapter 13, rather, verse number one. Here we go. They were in the church at Antioch. And remember, in the church that has nothing to do with the building. That doesn't mean they went to the place with the steeple. Nothing wrong with steeples. That's just not what church is. They were in the movement. They were in the gathering of people, right? So this is not a location statement. They were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers. Barnabas, we talked about him uh, a lot throughout this series. Last week we were introduced to Simeon, or maybe Simon, who was called Niger. Lucius, such a cool name, a Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend or even foster brother maybe of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. If you're new to the things of the Bible, you're like, finally, a name I recognize. I've heard of Saul before, uh, and I think he's also called Paul, and that's where my kids were born, was at St. Paul's Hospital or something, I don't know. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me. Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. And I want to slow down there because we didn't really slow down there last week. We didn't have time to get to that. This idea of them worshiping the Lord, if you're using something, this is the English Standard Version that's on the screens and in the seats in front of you, but maybe you're following along in a different English translation. A whole bunch of the English translations use the phrase here, they were ministering to the Lord. I love that language. Uh, A lot of the other English translations are like, that sounds weird, so we're just going to say worshiping. That sounds more common for church talk, is they were worshiping the Lord. But really it's the idea that they were ministering to the Lord. The word that's used here in the original language for either worshiping or ministering to is the word where we get liturgy from. Right? Maybe you grew up in a very liturgical church. Uh, It had a whole lot of very formal elements. Every church, by the way, has a liturgy. Anti-liturgy is a liturgy, right? Because liturgy is just the form or function of worship. I grew up where we were very non-liturgical. And if I could grew up, they were like, we don't do things like that. That's just a routine. But we're going to do the exact other thing every single time we gather together. 
It's just a different kind of liturgy, right? And so I didn't grow up where there was a call to worship from the word or a benediction from the word or any kind of creeds that we said together. Um, and when I got to temple, we didn't do that either. That was something that I was like, no, I think that's a healthy practice. But nonetheless, it's liturgy. It's, it's the form of, of ministry. This word that's ministered to here is the same word that's used to describe the role or the function or the responsibilities of the priests in the tabernacle and in the temple in the Old Testament. It really is, the, the better picture really is, here is that they ministered to the Lord. And if that doesn't sound weird to you, I, I want us to sit in it for a second. Because it's far more common to say that the Lord ministered to me than that I ministered to him. We might say that we ministered for the Lord, Right? We helped the little old lady cross the street. I just ministered for the Lord. Right? Or that a person would say, I'm a minister of the Lord. Right? But the language here is that they ministered to the Lord. Right? Those of you who've been in leadership in the church, maybe you've done something or you gave a testimony or you led a song or maybe you've shared your testimony and another believer comes up to you afterwards and says, hey, that really ministered to me. Can you imagine that God would say, Hey, you really just ministered to me with how you worshiped me today. That's incredible. But here's why I think that's incredible. Because I think that the, the modern ecclesia is really tuned into the Lord ministering to us. But I don't know that we always gather together with the mindset of, I'm primarily here to minister to him. Because here's how good he is. When we're preoccupied with him, he ministers to us. So the objective here isn't for me to come take something from him necessarily. The primary objective is this is the the gathering together where I reorient my heart. And I reorient my focus to the one who's worthy to be praised. And then when I do that, I'm like, oh, in ministering to him, he ministered to me. Which means we don't primarily come together in Ecclesia to consume. Right? We're not consumers here. The, the church is not this commodity. It's this gathering together because it's all about Jesus. And when we are all about Jesus, we're like, oh, wait, that's better for me too. Isn't that awesome? That that's how he created this little system? Because he didn't have to do it that way. He could be like, make it all about me and it will be lousy. That's how most of the other gods that you worship, right? They're like, I demand to be worshipped. And then stinks to be you. And our God is like, no, minister to me. And then I'm going to minister to you. He's so gracious. He's so kind. And as they're ministering to him, he's like, hey, it's time for history to change. Barnabas and Saul are going to be sent out from among you. And so uh, I was going to like skip the kind of this next section and give you an overview. But this is so historically important. I think it's worth us reading a little bit together this morning, even though I can't see today. Verse number three, after fasting and praying some more, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This is just worth saying here. If laying hands on them feels weird to you, you're like, no, that's what them dudes do that I watch on TV and they kind of freak me out and they blow on people or whatever. Listen, this isn't spooky. It's a, it's a visual, hey, we see your giftings. We recognize the calling of the Holy Spirit on your life. Like when a person is sent out, what we would call this like ordination, right? That we're just affirming the gifting God has placed on you. You don't need our endorsement. 
The laying on of hands doesn't give you gifts. We're saying we see gifts in you and we see strengths in you. So don't see this as some mystical, weird kind of thing or whatever. Um, and this isn't like putting on hands the way that sometimes you want to do with your teenage kids when they talk back to you. Like I'm fixing to lay on hands in the name of Jesus. This isn't that kind of thing either. Okay, verse 4. Being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, which is a port town. From there, they sailed to Cyprus. And again, I was just going to run over this, but I think it's worth saying. Um, remember, Jesus said, whenever the Holy Spirit comes, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and then Judea and Samaria, and then everywhere else, right? And we've said that Jerusalem doesn't mean like a place on a map. It means where you are, right? It means home. Here, there, and everywhere. And so it starts in our homes, on our streets, in our city, at our jobs, right? We're using Jerusalem as a picture. Here's biblical evidence that he meant more than just the place. He also meant it to be an example because Barnabas went home. I think that's really cool. He went home on his first trip to tell people about Jesus. Isn't that how it's supposed to work? Like we start with the people that we know and, and love. When they arrived at Salamis, which I love Salami, but that's not where that comes from. They proclaimed the word of the Lord in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. If you're not a church person, that might not sound weird to you. You'll be like, yeah, whatever. John, the beloved apostle, is the assistant right now. This is a bizarro moment in the history of the life of the church. Hey, John, will you carry my bags for just a minute? Okay, I'm only the beloved disciple, guys. Anyways, uh, John, when he had gone, uh, when they had gone, rather, verse 6, through the whole island, as far as, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician. Oh! God bless you. A Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. So what does it mean when they say he's a magician? Apparently the dude was actually kind of creepy. Like, I don't know that he actually did magic tricks. I don't know if that's how he made money or whatever. But apparently this guy is pretty creepy. His name's Bar Jesus. Here, Bar actually means son of Jesus. But it's also what he's going to try to do. He's going to try to bar Jesus from being proclaimed in the town. Because, you know, Bar is not just a noun. It's a verb as well. Right? If you go to the noun bar too much, you'll get verb barred from driving by the local municipalities, right? That's both a noun and a verb, right? And so he's he's going to try to verb bar Jesus from being proclaimed here in the story. He was with the proconsul, which is not a word we usually use. It's like the mayor, sort of, like an area governor. Uh, only this mayor is not elected. He's appointed. His name's Sergius Paulus. A man of intelligence, that's interesting, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of the Lord, but, and now Bar-Jesus is going to be given another name, Elemus, the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, which this that word in Latin means elite, but not like actually elite, elite as in like he thinks he's elite. He thinks his magic doesn't stink. Right? I was just waiting for it. This word, Alemus, can also be interpreted sorcerer. Or 
wizard, right? Straight up Lord of the Rings weirdness here. I don't know what's up with this dude. What I know for sure about this guy is he has influence. He has power with the governor, with the mayor. And he's threatened that the teaching of another Jesus might diminish his power, his position, his influence. I would guess his income or his his wealth, right? Because uh, it says he opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. What a terrible thing to have said about you. You sought to turn someone away from the faith. Verse nine is an incredibly important verse. We're going to park here for a few minutes. But Saul, who's also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. This is a big changing moment. It's the first time we see him called Paul. But you remember we talked when, whenever we were back in Acts chapter 9, like in March or something. I don't know. Um, we talked about the fact that like he didn't get a new name, Paul, because he's this person who Jesus is ashamed of his past and he needs to give him a new ID, right? Like, man, shred your license. Here's your new passport. No, no, no. He's still called Saul. It's been over 10 years, probably close to like 13, maybe even 14 years, we think. Between his encounter with Jesus and this moment, this is the first time he's called Paul because he's on his way to Greek speaking people who would call him Paul. That, that's just the Greek form of his name. But theologians would say that the rest of the book of Acts now should be called the Acts of Paul. Right. So if you look at the actual title of this book, it doesn't say the book of Acts. It says the the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Right. And I don't expect you to remember this, but somewhere back in January, we talked about that maybe this shouldn't be called the Acts of the Apostles. Maybe this should be called the Acts of the Church, because really what the Apostles do here is just fulfill what Jesus called all of his followers to do. I'm sure you remember we said that. And then I'm like, but really, it's not about the church. It's about Jesus. So maybe this should be called the acts of Jesus. But then Jesus said, don't do that until the Holy Spirit comes. And so maybe it should be named the acts of the Holy Spirit. But they did all of that in accordance with the authority and glory of the Father. And so maybe it should just be called the acts of the glorious triune God. But whatever, the people long before us called this the acts of the apostles. And say that you could even call the rest of the book the acts of Paul. This is an important moment. This is his first missionary journey. The missionary journeys that got the gospel to the end of the earth. This is his first of three. He takes four trips. The fourth one wasn't a missionary journey. It was as a prisoner heading towards his execution. But this is a pivotal moment, not just that he's stepping into his leadership moment. It's kind of like he's finding his voice in his calling. This, so remember, who did it say was there to assist them? John the Apostle is standing there. And then Barnabas, who's been this super out front visible leader up to this point, and they're encountering this wizard, and the Apostle Paul goes, I got this one. It's an important moment, right? He's like, hold my communion cup. I got this one. This is a huge moment. Like all of history is changing. In this incredible moment. And before we look at what he says, I want to share a story with you. (laughs) This is an amazing story. Almost 200 years ago, 
there's a story about two incredibly influential men who were alive. As a matter of fact, if you did a list of probably the top five or ten people of influence alive in the world at that time, in the middle 1800s, the first one we'll talk about is a guy named P.T. Barnum. Ladies and gents, this is the moment where I want to make money. Right? That's, that's how the song should have been. He's in the, in the middle of 1800s. The Barnum and Bailey Circus has taken off by this point. He's growing in his influence and it's not enough for him. There's another incredibly influential person who's preaching in London at this time, although he's traveling around the world and preaching. His name is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And if any family member of yours, a grandfather or whatever, has, has been a Baptist preacher, you've probably heard of Charles Haddon Spurgeon because he's kind of every preacher's hero. Like, historically, have, have, has there been a greater preacher? And because of the time in history, his sermons were recorded. And so we have writings of hundreds of his sermons. And good grief, the guy knew how to put words together and make sense out of them. Powerful man of God. And remember, middle 1800s, right? And yet when he would show up somewhere and preach, there would be crowds as large as 10,000 people with no advertising, like no no internet, no social media, no TV, no radio. Just Spurgeon's coming down and people would flock to hear the story of Jesus. Incredible ministry. And because Barnum was all about getting a crowd together, history tells us that he sent an invitation. He sent a wire to Spurgeon and said, I want to invite you to come preach in the big tent. He said, and here's the terms of the invitation. You can do whatever you want to do. You can use our music talent if you want to or bring your own. Can you imagine the bearded lady leading worship? <laughs> this is Jesus. You know, I don't know what. Like, what would that look like? Or you can bring your own musical talent if bearded women are weird for you, Spurgeon. Um, you can use all of our labor to set up and run the event. You can use all of our supplies. Everything that Barnum and Bailey Circus owns is at your disposal for this moment. And then he told him something. That if any of you know Spurgeon, you'll know this was a dangerous thing to put in writing. You can preach as long as you want to preach. To tell any preacher that is a dangerous thing. But to tell Spurgeon that meant like pack a lunch. You can preach as long as you want to preach. And then he told them, if you will come do this. I will pay you $1,000 per sermon in the mid-1800s. So I Googled, what does that mean for today? That's somewhere between thirty-four dollars and $35,000 for one sermon. Wow. That's a nice honorarium. I go to youth camp and don't have AC and preach 49 times to get like 50 cents. They offered this dude... Thirty-four to $35,000 to preach once. What in the world? But if you've seen The Greatest Showman, you might be questioning, what was the catch? That'd be a good question to ask. Because here was the catch. The last thing he said in the invitation was, the only thing I require is that all of the ticket proceeds from the gate will belong to the Barnum Circus Association. Sincerely, P.T. Barnum. And amazingly, we have uh, the words of Spurgeon's reply to him. He said, Dear Mr. Barnum, thank you for your kind invitation 
to lecture in your circus tents in America? You will find my answer in Acts chapter 13, verse number 10. Very sincerely yours, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And now we read verse 10. The Apostle Paul tells the wizard, Bar-Jesus, You son of the devil. You enemy, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? The first time we hear the Apostle Paul, who, when he was just Saul of Tarsus, remember it says he was breathing threats and the followers of Jesus were physically responding in fear, like they had a physical response to the threats that he would breathe. Now he's breathing a different breath, the breath of the Spirit of God, and now the other team is shaken. You son of the devil. Some of you are like, I've never memorized scripture before. But I might memorize this verse for the next argument I have with my husband. You son of the devil. And before we think, man, Paul's kind of a jerk. That seems harsh. Let's not forget Jesus was both gentle and lowly and furiously protective of his sheep. Especially with people who would manipulate religious attempts to get to the presence of God. On the week that Jesus went to the cross, he entered into the holy place, the temple, and pulled an Indiana Jones, made a whip, and drove people out and flipped tables over. He made a scene and made a mess in the temple because the people of God were being taken advantage of and the presence of God was being disrespected. He did not look meek and lowly in that moment. But yet we would never call him harsh. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus speaks to the religious leaders. And over and over again in that chapter, He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And I I know we don't use woe in our language unless we're riding a horse. But woe literally means you better watch yourself, Jack. And then we have this moment in John chapter 8 where he tells the religious leaders, You are children of the devil whose father you follow. Like you, you're the devil's kids and you act like him. Anybody ever tell you, I can tell whose kid you are. Really very, very similar verbiage to what Jesus said here. Rather to what the apostle Paul said here. Very similar verbiage. And so the reality is there's a time to be harsh. And here's when it is. If somebody's trying to block somebody from coming to faith in Jesus Christ, it's worth stepping up and speaking with some boldness. Because there's nothing more important in the world than the proclamation of Jesus. 
even if that person calls themselves the son of Jesus, it might just mean that they're leading somebody astray and it's time to step up. And then the Apostle Paul says this, Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you'll be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him. He went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. And that's interesting. We we don't read that the Holy Spirit told him to say that. I don't know if he was just like, well, this worked for me. You remember that? When the Apostle Paul encountered the presence of Jesus through a shining light on the road to Damascus, and he was blinded for a couple of days, and it changed his life. Being unable to see actually helped him see. And so before we see this as like he's smiting people with blindness, I think he's trying to help him see here, but I love this, verse number 12. Then the proconsul believed. Wouldn't you? Somebody stepped up on a wizard and said, hey, son of Satan. Right? Like, that's some boldness. <laughs> he believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. He was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Keep reading. We're, we're going to keep moving here. The, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, came to Persia in Pamphylia. It's the weirdest name. And John left them, returned to Jerusalem. They went on. From Perga came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Hang with me, all. We're, we're about to get something amazing. After reading from the Law and the Prophets, this is what you do in the synagogue. You read from the Law, the Law of Moses. Like how how can we get to God? Right? They're reading the the Law and the Prophets. The rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them. They're passing notes in class. Saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Verse 16, so Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. Here's why that's amazing. Here we have recorded the first sermon ever preached by the Apostle Paul. We're not going to read the whole sermon this morning, but I'd encourage you if clear out some space this week in your quiet time in the word and just read through this sermon. Because if you want to understand the theology of Paul, you can literally find everything he teaches in this first sermon. His And, and we think that's why there's so much detail. It's because I think the people in the room knew there's something going on right now. There's something special here. And it seems as though the whole sermon is recorded And he starts by talking about what would resonate with being in a Jewish synagogue. He talks about how God set them free in the Exodus. God delivered them from bondage. And then he talks about the first king, the one that he's named after, King Saul. And then he talks about the beloved King David. But then he talks about someone who came from the offspring of David. Look down at verse number 23. Of this man, David, this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel, not a king, a savior. He's brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. In his first sermon, it took him eight sentences to get to Jesus. 
In his first sermon, he's like, let's talk about the United Kingdom of Israel and the great kings, Jesus. <laughs> like, man, he's making a beeline, not to an earthly king, but to a savior. I love that. He runs to the story of Jesus and then continues to unpack for them just who this Jesus is. Look down at verse number 28. Though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. It's important that we recognize Jesus was innocent. He was without sin. He was not worthy of death. And it's crucial that we begin there because only an innocent man can bear the guilt of guilty men. (laughs) See, if he was dying for his own sin, he couldn't have carried mine. He was innocent. He was sinless. And yet, laid down his life for the sins of the world. And when, verse 29, when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Again, it's really important. Jesus physically died and he was bodily buried in the grave Next verse, but God raised him from the dead. Jesus was innocent, and yet he allowed himself to be executed. He was physically laid in the tomb. But here's what's never happened before. God raised him from the dead. And if that's true, it changes everything. Those of you who know your Bibles will start thinking about the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Start thinking about how he unpacks the power of the resurrection. Start thinking about how he would later write, if Christ is not raised from the dead, then we are, of all people, most to be pitied. It changes everything. Keeps going. And by the way, he's saying this isn't fairy tale because for many days he appeared to those who'd come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Sounds like the beginning of the book of Acts, right? With many proofs, he appeared to them. Verse 20, I'm sorry, 32. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Look down at verse 36. David, the great King David, after he'd served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. Here's what that means in modern language. He died, was buried, The end. (laughs) Nothing else happened. We talk a lot about him, but he didn't do anything else. Matter of fact, he saw corruption. He just decayed in that fancy burial place. The great King David, y'all. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Somebody greater than David has lived and died for you, Paul saying. Verse 38, here's where we will stop for today. 
Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. You know what the law offers you? A path to try hard not to sin. You know what Jesus offers you? Forgiveness of sin. (laughs) His death, burial, and resurrection, what we call the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the hope of the world. And it's so appropriate that this first sermon would would beeline that direction because what we do is we follow the Apostle Paul and find ourselves sitting together at the Lord's table. Later, the Apostle Paul would write to the Corinthians some interesting words. He said this, As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You know who can't come back again? Somebody who's dead. (laughs) Every time we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, we're reminded that he is the one who died and is alive and is coming again. This is our hope today. Hear me, church. The gospel is not the thing that we believe so that we can get to heaven one day. It's the thing that we believe so we can get out of the bed today. The gospel is not our future hope or our past hope. It's the present hope in every moment that we step into where Christ is still raised from the dead. I've said this a lot because there's some quotes that are just favorite quotes and you can't get past them. Tim Keller says, the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian life. It is the A through Z. We never grow beyond the gospel. We only grow deeper in our understanding of the implications of it. If we have matured past being gospel-centered people, we've matured away from Jesus. This morning we we celebrate and remember the hope of our marriages, the hope of our kids, the hope of our jobs, the hope of our bills being paid, the hope of breath in our lungs, the hope of the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet, because of bills and marriage and kids and jobs, we are prone to forgetfulness. And so in His mercy, the Lord has called us to come together to commune together and remember that we're proclaiming the Lord's death, resurrection, and soon coming return, hear me, to ourselves and to one another. Right? Because it says we're proclaiming the Lord's death. When I'm chewing, I'm not really talking. Who am I proclaiming to? I'm proclaiming to my own heart And to those who are partaking with me, Christ has died and Christ is risen. We proclaim that until he comes. These next two verses of the text, though, are important for us together. He says, whoever, therefore, because it's that big of a deal, 
Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Whew. That sounds scary. What does that mean to take it in an unworthy way? And, and the reality is he doesn't fully, ex- that, that's really kind of a scary statement. And I wish he gave us more detail in the text. He didn't give us a whole lot of detail. But there's, in the context, there's at least a few things that he means by being an unworthy partaking of the Lord's table. And here's the first one. I, I believe that I cannot remember what I've not experienced. Right? I can't remember something that hasn't already happened. And so if you've not entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ by being born again, then I'd encourage you, just meditate on that as the rest of us take communion right now. We don't think you have to be a member here to, to take communion with us. You don't have to be a member of a Baptist church. You don't have to be a member of a whatever. You don't even have to be Texan to take communion. We just think if you're one of God's kids, if you're born again, one of his children. And then if you've made that public, if you've taken the first step of obedience and being baptized, then we welcome you to partake in this with us. If you're not sure where you're at in that story, there isn't an ounce of shame in this room. Please don't feel bad to say, I think I'm going to wait this morning. Man, there's no pressure with that at all. Sometimes people are just in a funk and they feel like, I don't want to partake of this in an unworthy way. And I'm really angry today or or my faith is weak today. And I think I just need to meditate in this moment. Man, don't feel any pressure in this moment. And I think a a way that the, the text says we take of this in an unworthy way is if it's a trivial thing to us. Like if this is just a routine, whatever, it's time to eat the untasty cracker and drink the unpleasant juice. Let's go. Man, if this is just ritual or routine, I'd caution you to pause. Which is why he says that this should be our response. Let a person examine himself then hit the pause button for a second which man i will tell you uh, the older i get the more i realize how fast we are living our lives we don't hit the pause button super well let's pause for a second and examine ourselves and then eat of the bread and drink of the cup And so if you're worshiping with us online, what we're going to encourage you to do is take a moment to examine yourself right there. And when you're ready, partake of those elements. Because we believe Christ has died and he has risen. And we are ministered to when we minister to him by remembering.